0: Uh, So I've only had the opportunity to give a a little opening lecture one other time, and while I enjoyed it quite a lot, uh, it also felt a little bit like letting a local band open up for a much more gifted band, which is probably very exciting for the local band, but not so much for the concert goers. (laughs) I take Solace, one time I saw Iron and Wine open for Damien Rice. That was something. That's... Well, I'm alone in that excitement, (laughs) so that metaphor didn't land. (laughs) Hopefully, it's something closer to that than utter iterations of the opening band tradition. And at the end of the day, a plain declaration of God's word is always worthwhile, whether it's from the mouth of a donkey or an angel. So there's comfort in that. Mm. I've titled this little lecture of Trumpet Blasts and Heavenly Summonses or why you should be on time to public worship. (laughs) And I take as my text, uh, Revelation 1, verses 10 and 11. This is God's word. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet speaking. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Thus ends God's word. Mm. A Westminster Larger Catechism asks, what is required of those that hear the word preached? Westminster Standards, comprised of the larger and the shorter catechism in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger Catechism asking, what is required of those that hear the word preached? And it answers, it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Then in the book of church order of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is the denomination of this church, we read the following passage on public worship. The Lord's Day is a day of holy convocation, the day on which the Lord calls his people to assemble for public worship. An assembly of public worship is not merely a gathering of God's children with each other, but is, before all else, a meeting of the triune God with his covenant people. The triune God is present in public worship, not only by virtue of his omnipresence and omnipotence, but much more intimately as the faithful covenant Savior. I have a modest aim in this uh, brief introduction, and it's to commend uh, the classic practice of preparation for worship. Preparation for worship as a most natural and fitting extension of the conviction that our public worship is not merely a gathering of people with other people, It's not merely a gathering to hear about God, but rather it is a most intimate communing with God in the Lord Jesus Christ by his word and his spirit. I think you see this pretty plainly in the Revelation passage. We can note some of the circumstances of what happened to John. John had this remarkable experience, this incredible glimpse into the unseen things we can note the circumstances of what happens when John is summoned by this trumpet-like voice, and they're very much like our circumstances. When John receives this call, John is on earth. you like, well, obviously, Michael, John is on earth, but not so obviously, because in chapter 4, John is actually summoned to heaven. A door is open for him. But John's experience begins on earth. His unique experience where he goes into heaven is something that you could argue that we don't exactly share with John, although we benefit from John's experience. But this, John says, I was on the island called Patmos. I was decidedly on earth on the Lord's day, the day that you too mark, the day on which you're probably reading this very word. John invites us to see at this early part of the book of Revelation. That he is us and we are him where our experience is very much the same fellow participant in tribulation in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that is in Jesus Christ. So when John says, I was, on, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, we're not expected to hear the experience of a mystic here. Rather, we're to hear in plain language the reality that we all enjoy as fellow participants in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of christ in other words as john is summoned by the risen and ascended lord into the presence of the risen and ascended lord he's saying this is exactly what happens to you church as you gather to read the word of this risen and ascended lord you can already start to feel something of the weight of public worship and it's a weight i want to press to us, uh, help us to lean into as it were by latching onto one image that I want to spend a little bit of time teasing out. It's actually a sound, not even an image. John says, I heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet speaking. John is summoned into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with a trumpet-like summons. Why a trumpet? Well, partly, a trumpet is authoritative. It's bold. It's unapologetic. My child has a trumpet. You can't ignore a trumpet. (laughs) I've tried. (laughs) A trumpet seems fitting for the voice of the risen and ascended Lord who possesses all authority. All power, even over death and Hades, as he's about to tell John. But there's more going on with the trumpet. Certainly that most initial and impressive register of the trumpet's significant lands. But the trumpet is a rich feature in Israel's history. You could go any number of directions tracing out the layers of meaning that John weaves in with this one descriptive phrase, a trumpet-like voice. I want to just look at two quick Old Testament backdrops that bring out some of these layers. The first is Joshua at Jericho. The scene is recorded in Joshua chapter 6. Do you remember this episode? This is how horns got into my house. My kids know this episode. <laughs> God instructs Joshua to march around Jericho, it's an unbreachable city, walls that can't be toppled. And he instructs them to march once a day for six days. And then the seventh day, seven times there to march. And then we read in Joshua 6, 4 and 5. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat. Now we draw our attention to a few things here. Notice first that the trumpet signals a context of battle. Now, I've never been in a battle, but if you've read War and Peace... By the inestimable Leo Tolstoy. Have have you ever heard of Leo Tolstoy? You can ask one of the members here at Mission Orthodox Presbyterian Church how sick they are of hearing of the genius of Leo Tolstoy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he really brings you onto the battlefield. The experience of a battle is masterfully set forth in the pages of War and Peace, and you realize battle is intense, it's fierce, and it's to be met with a certain vigor a certain awareness, a certain diligence, a certain watchfulness. And we hasten to add, as Christians, it's ultimately to be met with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is worship battle? You tell me. You think it's a coincidence that Sunday is so frequently the day of arguments on the way to church? Do you think it's a coincidence that Sunday it seems that much harder to get things in order to get out the door? Do you think it's a coincidence that exhaustion feels just that much more intense on Sunday? The day when a host of concerns come barreling down on you, which mysteriously have been dormant for six days and all of a sudden they rear their head? Do you think the God of this world sits? idly by as little colonies of light gather to proclaim the true light and his eminent doom basking in the life-giving glow of the risen and ascended lord no he is not idle he is a polyarm who accosts christian on the way and says you are my rightful subject i do not give you up easily The trumpet sounds and attunes us to the reality of battle. A world that is fading. A God of this world who knows his time is over. And a community gathered around the risen and ascended Lord who declares him king. In a world that will not have him. It is battle. Vigor. Diligence. Watchfulness. Notice how the trumpet also elicits a response from God's people. The trumpet sounds and the people respond. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, then the people shall shout with a great shout. Now, we don't want to press this too far to see sort of a dialogical principle, as it were, between a trumpet and a responding set of trumpets. But certainly we see call and response in this. The trumpet calls and the people respond in kind. Now, I'm not a a historian of Reformed worship, but from my little knowledge, I know that participation of the people in response, particularly in song, was something that really took off in Protestantism. But it wasn't a mindless participation. That was a big development. We got to know what we're saying. We're active via our minds and our voices. It was a full-minded, full-souled participation on behalf of the people. God doesn't circumvent his own design. <laughs> the fact of our participation in worship as response in song in prayer with faith means that whatever lends itself to being able to participate with our minds is most fitting and most appropriate. Now, that's true at the most basic biological level of our existence. I am more prepared to participate with my mind when I'm well-rested, when I'm fed and not so hangry, (laughs) when I have ample time to reach my destinations and the chaos of soul isn't intruding itself, but even more so at the spiritual level, preparing ourselves in prayer, meditation upon god's word and the wonder of a god who's willing to meet with sinners in the lord jesus christ we can also notice last that the trumpet signals victory the horns of joshua announce and introduce the power of the aged to come against the powers of the age that is passing away Jericho's walls were unbreachable. What power in this world could overthrow them? They were giants, the inhabitants of the land. Goliath, as it were, the forebearers of Goliath. Giants, monsters, untoppable by human might. But it's not human might the horn signals that it is a divine might the powers of the age to come the power of heaven levied against earth on behalf of god's people the powers of this present age the power of sin the power of death the one who wields these fears as two hound-like monsters namely the devil These are unbreakable powers by anything that we have at our disposal. They are untoppelable until the horn of Helm Hammerhand sounds. Until God is pleased to unleash the power of the age to come, the power of the risen and ascended Lord. As the one who is light declares authoritatively that darkness doth not overcome. As the one who is life declares authoritatively that death doth not overcome. The trumpet summons to worship announces... To us and ushers us into participation with that heavenly power concentrated in heaven's king. Thus, it's more than just a reminder that our king has conquered, it's fellowship with this conquering king such that his power. Empowers our endurance with patience in the midst of the ongoing battle that still savors of the death adorning this world. These are remarkable gifts. That's a lot to pack into one word. Trumpet? <laughs> God's word is that rich, make no mistake. But even more than the gifts, the trumpet signals that the great giver of all gifts delights to meet with his people. So more briefly, and perhaps more than any other text, the meeting of God with his people in Exodus 19 stands behind this text. We know this scene well, right? There's fire. There's darkness. There's storm. A mountain engulfed in flame. It sounds like something right out of Tolkien. It's this wonder that's on display just before them. God, the maker of heaven and earth, descending in a theophany and appearing before his people to meet with the people whom he's just redeemed from the powers of this age that is passing away, the oppression of Egypt. I want to read a little selection from this, starting in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And Moses went up. It's hard to get your mind around what that would have been like the wonder, the spectacle, the trembling, the glory on display. But at the heart of it, it's God meeting with his people. The blessing that had passed to them was not simply that they now had freedom from Egypt, that they were released from captivity. The full blessing was that that freedom was now finding its terminus in engagement to the true and living God. Belonging entirely unto him. A new king. A king who met with them. But there's a tension, isn't there? You feel this. The wonder of God on display. And the people have this sort of Forward back motion about them. One scholar points out <laughs> unless there's something compelling them forward, there's no need to warn them not to touch the mountain. There's no need to warn them not to come near. You're going to see it, and something in you is going to want to rush headlong into the glory. Don't. Because if you do, you're going to die. But then there's also the fear, the very real response that comes at the end of chapter 20. You go near, we're going back. God brings him out, he manifests his glory, and you want to rush headlong into it. It's something you've never seen before. Obviously, this is a wonder of wonders. I want to plunge into it, I want to swim in it, I want to be engulfed by it. But it would be my destruction because he's holy and I'm a sinner. So then the writer responds, okay, like, I, you got to go over there. There's got to be someone between me and that, but I want to be near it. I want to be with it. This is the tension that sits at the heart of the Old Testament that's resolved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us, the one in whom John could rest Not just spiritually, but as he laid upon the bosom of his Lord. Make no mistake, it's the same God of glory who was pleased to come to us in unspeakable grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God who calls us near. This is the God with whom we meet every lord's day in the lord jesus christ i know of no greater reason to arrange your life around the rhythm of the lord's day in public worship than to say simply we get to be with our god (laughs) and that uniquely by faith until the day of sight comes now i'll close with this in making this point I'm, i'm running a risk aren't i i'm saying prepare to meet your maker every week i'm saying be on time it was the sort of tongue in cheek title but i mean it be on time (laughs) (laughs) and you see how it fits with the vision of worship but there's a risk what's the risk michael aren't you being a bit graceless michael aren't you being a little bit legalistic saying get there on time A long time ago, I actually accused my soon-to-be wife of the same thing, her graceless heart. She had the gall, the audacity, the legalisticness of heart to ask me to be on time for my wedding ceremony. (laughs) She looked at me in earnestness and said, be at church by noon. I said, legalist. She stared coldly back at me to the depth of my soul, and I didn't end up marrying that particular woman for some reason. I guess it just didn't work out. I'm kidding. This is. <laughs> I'm just joking. I've only been engaged once. <laughs> but it really puts a vivid face on this, doesn't it? <laughs> the objection of legalism is a category confusion. Mm-hmm. It's not legalistic to insist someone be on time to their wedding. It's appropriate. It's fitting. It's remarkably fitting. It would be absurdly unfitting to say, hey, it's just another day. Do whatever it is you got to (laughs) do. Now, certainly we're always at risk of taking what is fitting and destroying it. By making it something meritorious or something magical. Those are the great dangers, right? There's nothing meritorious about being on time for worship, about preparing for worship. You don't get any points in heaven. You're not adding to the storehouse of merits. No one's ever going to appear before the Lord and hear him say, you are righteous because you showed up to worship on time. Nor is there anything magical about being on time or preparing for worship. There's nothing magical about the pew five minutes before worship starts versus five minutes after. There's no ex opere operato situation to the time. But just because it isn't meritorious and it isn't magic doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. And may the Lord give us the grace to feel the weight of such a matter rightly. But there is one clarification I want to make, and I hasten to make it as a parent of young children who bring a certain amount of unpredictability and the unruliness of a thousand oceans into my life. (laughs) (laughs) At the risk of undermining everything I've just said, while the call to prepare The call to be on time, the call to grapple with the profound gift of drawing near to our God in worship absolutely matters. Our preparedness is not ultimately what's determinative. In the final analysis, the Lord does not meet with us to bless us and keep us because of the purity of our preparation. The Lord is pleased to bless with us, to bless us and meet with us in the Lord Jesus Christ to magnify his grace and mercy extended unto weak and helpless sinners who are consistently bested by circumstances, bested by adorable two-year-olds, bested by all manner of things, which remind us that even if we can't prepare for worship, it doesn't mean we can't come prepared to worship. And the heart that's prepared to worship comes before the Lord crying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, expecting to find that mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives that mercy. Let's pray. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is an inexpressible blessing to worship you in spirit and in truth. As those who have been purchased by the Good Shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep, the one who washes us, clothes us, preserves us, feeds us, and guides us by taking us to himself. Grant to us, O Lord, an ever-increasing understanding and a growth in the grace that you are pleased to extend freely in Jesus Christ, that we may take these things into our hearts and minds Bless our time together considering this great gift of worship. Bless Dr. Gibson as he teaches and instructs us from your word. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.